Okay, we'd like to welcome you back to our current event and weekly Bible study for February 28th, 2010. I believe this is part five of our Q&A session regarding scriptural issues. Next question is, uh, really enjoy your sermons. The Bible says, in, in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Exodus 23 uh, 13. For your best interest, I would suggest you keep the names of false gods from your speaking. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't reveal darkness. It means that you should be more astringent on how you proclaim them. I bring this up because I wanted to listen to one of your sermons as I rested, but you were using the names of occultists and unclean spirits so much that I could not even allow myself to hear it while unconscious. Wow, I'm so sorry I disturbed the... Obedience is better than sacrifice, so being obedient to God would be for you to watch your names you embellish with your attention. The occultists these days are becoming popular. I fear that Christians are now finding people like Blavatsky, and he doesn't say her full name. He, he abbreviates it, so he doesn't even write it. Now, this is an example of being holier than thou, as far as I'm concerned, and sanctimonious. A lot of people want to come at me, and sometimes it's warranted, sometimes, and I'll admit when I'm wrong, okay? But they really want to strain at gnats and swallow camels. They want to so get into the speck of their brother's eye when they have a beam in their own. Okay, I'm not even saying, maybe he doesn't have any beam. Okay, maybe he has, maybe that's not the case with him. But I'm saying, I, I, I see that a lot. And I'm not even saying that's the case here. Let's just say his heart's in the right place. And I'll give him that. Okay, I'm just saying I get a lot of those types of emails. And, um, you know, comes with the territory. The occultists these days are becoming popular. I feel like Christians are now finding people like, again, he doesn't even write the full name. We're, now we've, we've went from, from a, the this thing of where it says in Exodus, not to name the name of other gods, or neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Now we've gone from that to actually not even naming the people who would point you to false gods. Where does it say that in the Bible? Do you understand this is how cults get started? I'm not saying he started a cult. I'm saying this is how cults get started. They take one little piece of scripture and they put it under a microscope and they put their own interpretation on it and they also don't reconcile it with the rest of the Bible. That that is literally how cults get started and this is how literally how bad doctrine gets started. They don't reconcile it with the rest of the Bible. They do it to the exclusion of the rest of the Bible. Anyway, um, here's my response. If this is the case, why does the Bible, the Word of God, name them by name? What if we read the Word of God and those names are in the readings? What do we do then? I expose them, I don't worship them. This verse is in reference to having respect, worship, and dignifying other gods. The verse he quoted where it says, And in all things I have set unto you to be circumspect, and to make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Let's face it, in the Old Testament times, what was one of the greatest things they were always warning against? Idolatry. Running after other gods. Well, if you were to do that, you would speak their name, right? In other words, let's reconcile Scripture with Scripture here. This verse is in reference to having respect, worship, and dignifying other false gods. I am doing exactly what Stephen 
one of the greatest Christians of all time, not to say I'm anything compared to him, but I'm doing what he was doing in the verse below in Acts 7.43. Stephen. Well, okay, let's, before we read Stephen's, let's, um, uh, but you have borne the tabernacle, okay, you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chun, your images, the star of your God, which you have made to yourselves. Okay, that was actually Amos 5.26. Acts 7.43. Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch. Now this is Stephen rebuking the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is Stephen, the first martyr. One of the greatest Christians of all time ever. What did Stephen say? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rempham. You know what the star was? It was a hexagram. And I've proven that. And I proved it in the hexagram teaching. So that kind of relates to the last question I just talked about. Now, if we don't know about these things and we never mention them by name, how can we warn people? How is it possible? How is it possible to reprove, rebuke, to manifest, which means made light, the unfruitful works of darkness and have no fellowship with them? If we don't know them, how are we to um, fulfill so many Bible verses if we don't name them by name and call them out and point them out? The Bible says to mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. How do I mark Madame Blavatsky or Aleister Crowley or Alice Bailey or Devil Betraya or Benjamin Kremp? How do I mark them and not mention their name? How is that possible? See, the thing is, is like this guy, he wants to he wants to focus on one thing to the exclusion of to, of so much. Other, many other logical questions that you would have to ask yourself at that point. How are we supposed to mark them? <laughs> mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. They're, they're going to wax worse and worse. We're supposed to mark them. We're not supposed to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Why? Lest he get an advantage of us. If we're ignorant of Satan's devices, and this is what I see is the most gigantic problem just about in the day and times we're living in, at least one of them. People are ignorant of Satan's devices, and it's going on right under their nose in the churches, and they're participating in it, and they're condoning it, and they're ignorant of it. And the preachers sure aren't preaching about it. So what's, what's, what's it done? It's allowed leaven, which is typology of sin to creep in and to permeate the church to the point where people are just swimming in sin in the church and they think they don't do anything wrong. Why? Because it's never been pointed out. <clears throat> so, Stephen, name the name of these pagan deities. Okay, Obviously, the verse that we quoted in Exodus is in regard to Respect, worshiping, dignifying other false gods. Baal is mentioned 52 times in the Bible. Or Baal. Here are just a couple of verses. 
And Joash said unto them that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Here is a Old Testament Bible believer. Joash said unto the, that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal or Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death. Obviously, he wasn't on Baal's side. He said, He that will plead him, let him be put to death. Whilst it is yet morning, if he be a god, let him plead for himself, because he hath cast down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbabal, saying, Let Baal plead against himself, because he hath thrown down his altar. You you could go, I, I could list verse after verse here. Okay, again, we have to compare scripture with scripture. Which is what I see very little being done, uh, not with my listeners, but with um, a lot of people that get into these cult-like pet doctrines. They just want to key on this micro uh, portion of scripture and to the exclusion of the rest of the Bible. Let's go further. Uh, let's see. Dear Sir, I wrote to Dr. Scott Johnson at Contending for Truth, and he referred me to you. Below is what I asked him. Oh, okay. This is a, a, a question I defer to Dr. Pastor D.A. Waite. <clears throat> I was listening to the King James Only audio series, and I was wondering what the issue is with using something like the Geneva Bible. I presume that most of the early Reformation Bibles came out of the Textus Receptus. Just like the KJV, I believe the Geneva version used the same codex underlying text as the KJV. Furthermore, it has the added benefit of not being authorized by the Church of England, right? This is what he was asking me. Now, I defer this question to Dr. Waite because I can't answer every single question that comes to me. Now, understand, Dr. D.A. Waite has 60 plus years experience in defending the King James Bible. No, you didn't hear me wrong. 60 plus years he's been doing this. There's not a whole lot of people you're going to find on the planet more qualified than him. And he's also humble. He's also not all full of himself. And many of you might have seen lately how Gail Ripplinger has attacked him because he was forced to expose her, him and his wife both. Gail Ripplinger's went off the deep end. I'm being absolutely... 100% 100% honest. The Bible says to mark them, and I am marking her. Uh, and he has a 61-page response to all of her accusations. The only reason she's accusing him of all of the stuff, whatever it is, I haven't even had time to look into it, is because she's trying desperately to get the spotlight off herself and onto him. Make him be the bad guy, because accusing people like Gail Ripplinger, that's what they do. Way out of line, that woman is. Way out of line. And now she's threatening to sue him, as she's done many other people. Um, kind of funny, the Bible says we're not supposed to, you know, go to law one with another Christian brother. But that doesn't matter. Oh, she says Dr. Waite's an infidel. So that allows her to do this. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to be in her shoes. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ, but I wouldn't want to be in her shoes. Anyway, he's got a 61-page response to her accusations. And Phil Stringer has a response as well that is brilliantly written. 
I have always loved Phil Stringer and Dr. D.A. Waite and their ministries. And uh, there's, there are two that I do recommend. So, anyway, you know, after going well, I just went through with uh, Ed Watson and, and been through on several different occasions with other people attacking me. Uh, I can really sympathize with them. So, anyway... Um, Anyway, I'm going to put that out in my next email on that thing. You can uh, the links to all those if you want to look more into that <clears throat> regarding uh, Dr. Waite and uh, Gail Ripplinger. Let's see here. Uh, <clears throat> he goes on to say, "Didn't the frame of the KJV come from the Bishop's Bible, which was authorized by Is- Elizabeth I?" What are your thoughts on this? The reason I ask is because I I doubt I own a Textus Receptus version. In addition to this segment, I have done some additional research, and it looks like the English nobility had some issues with the Geneva Bible. Was the Geneva Bible less sympathetic to the, quote, right of kings and an Episcopal church governance? You have clearly done way, way, way more research than me concerning this matter, so I would like to hear your thoughts, or perhaps you could direct me to a good source that would resolve this KJV versus Geneva question. I am very interested in gathering information on this issue because I would like to own a Textus Receptus-based Bible in the near future. I refer this to Dr. Waite. Okay. Can't be, you know, he's way more of an expert in this area than I am. He goes on to say, Dr. Waite, Dear Matthew, he gives a link here about the Geneva Bible. This link tells you about the Geneva Bible. It was based on the Textus Receptus, but had many strong Calvinistic notes in it. It was very, very much a Calvinistic-type Bible. The pilgrims brought it to the USA, but changed to the King James Bible very soon. Our defined King James Bible that we publish is the Cambridge edition of the King James Bible and is based on the Textus Receptus. We also sell the Textus Receptus itself in two different formats. One with the pure Greek words, and the other we call the Scrivener's Annotated Greek New Testament, which gives a bold letters the changes made by, guess who? Westcott and Hort. The false Greek text, and made the English Revised Version of 1881, or the ERV. Now that's just the verse I was, the version I was exposing. And this um, Scrivener's Annotated Greek New Testament actually gives in bold letters the changes made by Westcott and Hort. It goes and it shows how Westcott and Hort went in there and played God and changed the text of the Textus Receptus. It shows how they did that. And they were playing God. Just like the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so anyway... um, That would be interesting. And then he says, I believe that the Geneva Bible was not sympathetic with the divine right of kings, as you said. The Geneva Bible, though based on the Textus Receptus, was not as careful of a translation as the King James Bible. For this reason, the king authorized the King James Bible to be translated from 1604 to 1611. Realize it took seven years for that translation to actually complete. And the translators that he had on that committee from 1604 to 1611, were very brilliant men in their own right. Um, So, anyway, I thought that was a good response there. Here is another question. Okay. Um, 
Did Jesus suffer in hell for three days after he was crucified? My response, no, that is heresy. That originated as far as I know, well, at least recently with some prosperity preachers. I've heard prosperity preachers teach this. He visited hell after the crucifixion, but he did not suffer there. Um, This is from a link, Did Jesus Suffer in Hell? Um, I recently heard a preacher state that Jesus died and then went to hell for three days to suffer for our sins. This is absolutely wrong. Let's look at a few scriptural passages to see what really happened. Ephesians 4, 8, 9. Wherefore he saith, when he hath ascended upon, upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Jesus did, in fact, descend into the lowest parts of earth. But does that mean he suffered in hell? Or is there something else besides hell that is located in the lowest parts of the earth? Well, let's read Luke 16, 19-30. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed uh, with, with cr- crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. We were in some store the other day. Oh, it was Publix. And I turned to Taylor. It was the, I guess it was the Spanish section or something, the food. And they had all these Catholic candles. And it had this one candle of Lazarus. And I didn't know it was him until I looked down. And he was covered in sores. And he had this dog licking his sore. And he was kind of like walking all pitiful toward you. It was this candle you could buy. All these Catholic candles. <laughs> Oh, I guess Lazarus is one of the saints they pray to. Anyway, um, it was pretty pitiful looking. It was creepy, actually. They see that thing burning in your house. Uh, anyway, and it's fun. You know, you bring that home. You bring a nice curse home with you. You know, you can have that in your house, too. And it literally, you are. You are bringing devils into your house when you bring cursed objects in. And there's Bible for that, too. When Achan brought sin into the camp. And he got the Babylonian garment and the wedges of silver. And those were cursed objects. God said, don't take anything out of Jericho. Achan didn't do it. What happened? Battle of Ai. Next battle, well, they lost like 27 people. They went before the Lord to inquire of the Lord. Well, why did this happen, God? Well, because Achan brought sin into the camp. Even though the rest of you were right, he wasn't. He brought sin into the camp. It affected the whole camp. That's what happens when you, when you bring cursed objects in your house. <coughs> Going further... And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which when he was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is where he was carried to. The rich man also died and was buried. And when he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Meaning Lazarus was with Abraham in Abraham's bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I get people emailing me. I've had several. Well, hell's not real. You, How can you believe hell's real? I'm like, this Bible verse alone. You can't, I mean, Jesus Christ preached more in hell. Then he did essentially every other subject. He, he preached on way more in heaven. There's, 
references to hell all over the Bible. People say it's not real? Man, I mean, again, it's real. you got to really uh, ignore a whole lot of verses to believe that. <clears throat> he says, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. In other words, Abraham's bosom's on one side, hell's on the other. There's a great gulf or chasm between the two. You can't go back and forth. If that was the case, everybody from hell would be running over to Abraham's bosom. You know, they'd be trying to get out of there. Be throwing up ladders and doing everything they could possibly do to get over there. They can't get over there. Um, let's see, let's go further. Um, then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto them, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went up unto them from the dead, they will repent. Isn't that, isn't that ironic that one did come from the dead? Because when Jesus, after he was resurrected, you know, he came and, and people saw him and all that. And still there was tons that didn't believe. So, you know, it, for some it wouldn't matter what happened. It wouldn't matter what happened. They still wouldn't believe. So the rich man died and went to hell, a place of torments. Lazarus also died, but he, but he neither went to hell to be tormented, nor he went to heaven to be with God, at that time at least. Lazarus was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom, where there was no suffering. Lazarus was comforted in Abraham's bosom. Where is Abraham's bosom? In the scripture we see that it is next to hell, and they're separated by a gulf. The rich man could see Abraham and Lazarus, Lazarus, in the lowest parts of the earth, there are two places, hell and Abraham's bosom. The lost went to hell, the saved went to Abraham's bosom. Or I, I would say, at that time, Old Testament Bible believers, before Jesus Christ had actually died upon the cross. Okay, we're going to get into this more, so bear with me here. Now, we know that there are two places in the lowest parts of the earth. So how can we tell if Jesus went to hell to suffer for three days, or if he went to Abraham's bosom? Luke twenty three thirty nine through 43 says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Can you imagine this guy? The malefactor, this one of the thieves, is railing on Jesus? Wow, I mean, no fear of God there. <clears throat> but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost, now, dost thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? That's what I just said. <laughs> and we, we need, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. In other words, he admitted they were guilty. He was guilty. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he saith unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shall thou be with me in paradise. He said, Today. Oh no, we, we go into soul sleep when we die. We just, we're in the ground. Well, 
the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus Christ said to the thief on the cross, today thou will be with me in paradise. Doesn't sound like he was sleeping. He says, you're going to be with me in paradise. According to the scriptures, when did Jesus tell the repentant thief he would be with him in paradise? Today. Not after three days. The day Jesus died, he went to paradise, in other words. That's another reason we can know he went there to paradise. Would you call a place of torments paradise? Doesn't it sound more like a description of Abraham's bosom where the people were comforted? So if Jesus did not go to hell to suffer for our sins, when was God's wrath poured out on him as the penalty for our sins? Well, it's right here. John 19.30. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he says, he said, it is finished. And bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. So, no, it really wasn't finished. He had to go to hell and suffer for three days. Things to think about. Right before Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He must have suffered all of God's wrath before he died. Do the scriptures support this? Matthew 27, 45 through 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land under the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For three hours, from the sixth to the ninth hour, God turned the lights out on the earth because he didn't want anyone looking in when he poured out his wrath on his son, when he bruised the son for our iniquities. It was during these three hours that God, the son, had become sin for us and that... um, and that um, he could not call on God. Because he, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <clears throat> the son was forsaken of the father. It was during these three hours that Jesus suffered in our place. Jesus did not have to go to hell to suffer the torments of those flames, in other words. Not to say he didn't suffer before the three hours either, but I mean, I think this was the primary. This is when he bore our reproach on the cross. He paid our sin debt with his blood and, and you know, his broken body. First Peter 3.18. Now these are, these are verses I added in. Because I thought there were some other verses we could add in to even bolster this teaching more. First Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. But quickened by the spirit. He was put to death in the flesh but quickened, which means to be made alive by the Spirit, capital uppercase S, which is Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important what Bible you're reading, because a lot of Bibles probably won't even, they probably have a lowercase s. What spirit's that? Could be a demonic spirit. Uppercase S, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. Very important. Next verse, 1 Peter 3.19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Did you know that? Now, Jesus may have went, to hell, to preach to the spirits in prison, but it doesn't mean he was there suffering in hell. Okay? It says he went to preach to the spirits in prison. What might these spirits be? Well, it may be all those that have went to hell before us. It also may be um, in reference to the fallen angels, which were um, bound there from Genesis 6, starting in Genesis 6, which the Bible says they he's reserved in everlasting chains of judgment under the day of judgment. 
Where does it say that? In the book of Jude. When it says the spirits were bound in prison in, in, in regard to hell, it's the only place in the Bible the word Tartarus is used as the underlying Greek. The word Tartarus is actually a special compartment of hell. And it's where the actual fallen angels are chained and bound under the day of judgment. Okay? Were those the spirits he went and preached to in prison? Most likely he did go to those spirits. Whether he preached to all the spirits in prison? I don't know. It's kind of hard to be totally dogmatic about it. I don't know. Next verse, 1 Peter 3.20. Which sometime... Oh, no, this does tell us. Which sometime were disobedient. What were these spirits in prison? Which sometime were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Sells us right here. While the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. <clears throat> so now, when it says that he went and preached on the spirits in prison, which were sometime also disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, I believe this is in reference to the fallen angels. Now, I'm going to go ahead and go to that verse in Jude, just to bolster this. Okay, now, I believe this Bible verse very much relates to this. Uh... And the angels, which kept not their first estate. Now these are the one, what does the state mean, their home? Which were the original angels that kept not their first estate? The sons of God that saw the daughters of men that they were fair in Genesis 6, okay? And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under, unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, what is this Sodom and Gomorrah thing? They just said the angels which kept not their first estate. He hath reserved in chains, everlasting chains of, of under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. And then, what does it do? The next verse, it gives an example of something like this. In other words, it says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth in as, as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. That doesn't bode well for gay people thinking they're going to heaven. Okay, now, what does all this, what does this comparison mean? Well, if you think about it, the comparison of the Sodomites from Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh is, the, is a similar comparison to the fallen angels going after women. They're going after strange flesh, just like the Sodomites went after men, which to them is strange flesh. It should have been. It's not of God. Same as fallen angels going after women. It was never, it was strange flesh. It was wrong. It was an abomination. What was the punishment for these fallen angels? Well, they were kept in everlasting change under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Well, when it says here that he, meaning Jesus, went and preached under the spirits of prison, which were some 
which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, well, it's pretty clear that those spirits most likely were at least primarily those fallen angels that fell in um, Noah's day. And then, you know, also after that. How that all took place? Well, I mean, you can go to the book of Enoch. book of Enoch gives you a pretty good idea. I'm not saying it's scripture, but it gives you some interesting commentary. And the book of Enoch is quoted in the book of Jude. So... Uh, anyway, that's kind of interesting if you if you kind of look at that. And um, let's see here. Let's go further. Okay, so we have clear indication that Jesus, he said it was finished on the cross. Okay, we know that he went to paradise after he was on the cross, okay? How could he suffer three days and three nights in hell if he went to paradise right after that? What, did he suffer a day and a half? Okay, it, it, it didn't happen. It was finished. He went to paradise. Now, he did go into the spirits in prison. Doesn't mean he was suffering there. Remember, God created uh, hell for the angels. That was what it was originally created for, okay? You think Jesus Christ is going to be afraid to go there? Jesus Christ is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same in the beginning was God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. He's omnipresent. You can't get away from Him. You can't, it, doesn't, it says if I go to the lowest depths of hell, I can't get away from Him. The Bible says that. I believe in Job. So it's not like He's not omnipresent anyway, or omniscient, all-knowing, or all-powerful. He's all of those things, okay? So, you think hell's going to scare Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Well, Revelation 1.18 says, I am he that liveth, this is Jesus Christ, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. That was where he took the keys of hell and death, when he went over there to speak, speak to the spirits in prison. What else did he do? He took those that were in Abraham's bosom with him and took them to heaven. How can you prove that? Uh, You can prove it by this verse. I'm trying to find the verse. Here it is. We already read it. Ephesians 4, 8, 9. Wherefore he saith, he ascended up on high, Jesus Christ. He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Why did he have to descend into the lower parts of the earth? He had to go to Abraham's bosom to lead captivity captive. Before Jesus Christ came, before the perfect lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth shed his blood to pay our sin debt and to save our souls, man could not go directly to heaven. They went to Abraham's bosom up until that point. Once Jesus' sacrificial sacrifice on the cross took place though, he could lead those that were captive in Abraham's bosom. He could take captivity captive. He took captivity, those who were in captivity captive and took them up to heaven. I don't believe Abraham's bosom is in use anymore because of that. 
Wherefore he saith, he hath ascended on high. Jesus went ascended on high. When, when he ascended on high, what did he do? He led captivity captive. It even says it when he went on high. When he went on high, how could that be Abraham's bosom? Couldn't it be because that was in the lowest parts of the earth. Well, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. I mean, heaven's a pretty great gift. As nice as Abraham's bosom probably was, um, heaven was a whole lot better. See, the blood of bulls and goats and calves could never be enough for us to enter into heaven. It had to be the blood of the perfect lamb, his precious perfect blood that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That's the only way we could grant entrance into heaven. Through his finished work on the cross. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. It's the only way because it's going to happen. Now, he, now that he ascended, but now he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? So it tells you he descended first in the lower parts of the earth. He said, today I will be, you will be with me in paradise. Okay, So he went down. To paradise, the thief was with him, went there, went at some point, preached to the spirits in prison. I believe at that point, at some point, took the keys of death and hell. Then, when he ascended, he took, led captivity captive. It's very clear. Now, granted, it's not all in one little neat spot in the Bible where it just lays it all out for you. There, you you got to dig for this. The Bible says to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. This is stuff we have to dig for a lot of times. We're supposed to be like the Bereans, which were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they sought the words, you know, they, they sought into the word of God daily to see if the things that they were, um, things that they were being taught were so. They wanted to prove it out. And that's what we're supposed to do. So anyway, uh, those are some verses to think about. <clears throat> then he ends this, this ends by saying, have you been born again? The wrath that God poured out on Jesus for your sins was so horrible that God darkened the whole earth so that no one could see how horrible it was. If you reject the price that Christ paid for you, God will repay you with the same wrath. Jesus was able to suffer the eternal wrath of God in three hours because Jesus is an eternal being. Now, again, it's the... I'm not going to be so dogmatic as to say it was just three hours. I mean, let's face it. You know, he was, it started the night before. You know, is when it really started as far as the suffering part goes. So, anyway, um, Jesus is an eternal being. Since you are not, um, you have to suffer God's wrath for eternity if you reject him. Um, if you have lied, if you've not honored your parents, you've not. In other words, if you are a sinner, and we all are sinners, okay, we all are sinners. The Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. So all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans six twenty three. So um, uh, you have, if you have murdered in your heart, if you've ever hated another. Um, you're an adulterer in heart if you've ever lusted or a fornicator. You're guilty. Justice demands punishment for your transgressions. Jesus has paid your penalty. To receive God's mercy, confess and forsake. Uh, I would refer you to my teaching on the on salvation. 
that's where I would refer you to, um, which you can key if you go up to um, either contendingfortruth.com, do a keyword search in the archives, or um, if you go to um, YouTube and do a keyword search for Scott Johnson and the word salvation, you'll find it either place. Last thing, a little article on the debt and the curse. In this study, we'll be relating what the Bible calls the curse, which the Lord created to correct and turn his children around in repentance. We find that debt is part of of the curse. Um, Let's see here. Today, we'll address another element, Christians in debt. Despite the promises of the hundredfold blessing, for those who tithe and are manipulated and victimized into all the slick Christian uh, hucksters as they beg for gifts and the nagging problem of the unending debt just seems to dog the folks that obediently reach into their wallets or purse. Now, granted, I think it depends what kind of heart you give in, okay? Because a lot of people are just duped, and it doesn't mean that when they're giving, they're under a curse, okay? But if you're putting your money into a wicked organization or an ungodly organization, whether you know that or not, it's still going to affect you in a spiritual way. When we look at the word, at the blessing principle God gave in the first covenant, we see Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will open unto thee his good treasures in heaven uh, and to bless all the work of thy hand and thou shalt lend unto many nations and thou shalt not borrow. Um, Have you noticed the church just loves the blessings but very few ever mention the curse. Let's pay attention, uh, close attention to what God says about debt. We will start in Deuteronomy 28. <clears throat> but it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I have commanded thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. The sojourner that is in the midst of thee shall mount up, above thee higher and higher, and thou shalt come down lower and lower. He shall lend to, he shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be thy head, and thou shalt be the tail. They go on to say, let's pull the mask off of borrowing and debt. It is clearly stated by God as to be one of the curses. Haven't we all been bit by that serpent? Let's go a little bit further as we begin to pay attention to what God says. Proverbs 22.7, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Real clear. The borrower is servant to the lender, and the rich ruleth over the poor. And this curse that was just described in um, Deuteronomy 28, it says the sojourner that is in the midst of thee, meaning the stranger that's in the midst of thee, he shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. What's the result? He shall be the head, and thou shall be the tail. Do you want a stranger being your head? Well, that's what you do when you get into a debt. When you, when you openly, willingly get into a debt, you are basically making another person your head. I mean, that's, it's very, very clear. <clears throat> the Bible also says, Romans 13.8 Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Okay, now, it says we're not supposed to owe man any, no owe man anything. 
How many of us read these verses and really never gave it much thought as we finance that car? Home remodel, new appliances, vacation, or whatever else the soul lusted for. There is no self-righteousness here, folks. We've been there, done that plenty. Again, I've said before, I'm still caught from my past. You know, I still got a $50,000 school loan that I don't know, you know. Knowing what I know now, no, I would have fought tooth and nail to have never done any of that. But you reap what you sow. It doesn't matter that you have good intentions now. doesn't mean you're still not going to reap and sow from your past. But that's really the only debt I have at this point. I mean, um... It is. Other than monthly occurring bills, that's one thing. That's not like going out and getting a credit card and borrowing money. Those are things you're paying as the month goes, okay? And if you have a debit card, I don't think there's anything wrong with really having a debit card because a debit card is actually your money. Your money, it's just a form of, of, you, uh, you know, you're creating a gigantic paper trail with a debit card, but it's still not borrowing money. I think this is the big key, is not trying to get into a borrowing situation because the borrower is servant to the lender. Do you want to be servant to the ungodly banking institute? And the banking institute is one of the most ungodly, wicked, unjust scales and balances that you could ever imagine factions of this world economy. The love of money is the root of all evil. And God abhors unjust scales and balances, and that is what the banking system is based on with the fractional reserve banking. It's an abomination of God. <clears throat> so, uh, let's see. Anyway, let's go further here. Okay, now I've done a whole teaching on New Testament giving compared to the Old Testament Levitical tithe. I'm not going to come down on somebody that gives 10% because that may be exactly what God's convicting them to do. The Bible says in the New Testament, as a man hath purposed in his heart, so let him give. But don't give... Uh, the Bible says that goes on to say that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. In other words, don't do it begrudgingly. Okay? So, he, uh, I've done a whole teaching on this and he mentions tithing. Uh, as the American church capitalizes on the prosperity gospel and tithing is now mainstream... Greed and a lust for gain has taken over much of the church from the pulpit to the pew. I mean, how many jets does an evangelist actually need? <laughs> a jet. Can you? I can't even imagine a jet. <laughs> An $80 million church remodel. <laughs> it's true. I mean, this stuff goes on all the time. These mega churches? Where, where in the New Testament does it say we're supposed to go build these gigantic mega churches and, and make sure that they're registered as a 501c3 corporation? They've got to be registered that way. You have a, if you have a church like that, you can operate as a non-501c3. You, you might be able to pull it off if you did it from square one, but boy, boy, you'd have a lot of trouble doing it. And I mean, let's face it, 99.99% of all those churches are doing it just by... Uh, they're, they're corporate entities, they've got all their licensing, they've got all these things, they've yoked themselves up the, with the government in so many different ways, and I just don't see any Bible for it whatsoever. You know, did Jesus or the apostles take a license to preach? Did they, did they come in and yoke, get yoked up with the government and make sure that they, they had their corporate status in line so that they could actually preach and have a church? No, it was never even 
you know, we're not supposed to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and that's what this is all about. Whether it's owing them debt or money, or whether it's yoking ourselves up in some 501c3 corporate church where the IRS rules over you and dictates to you what you can say and what you can't say, whether you want to admit it or not, you should be abiding by their rules if you sign up for their agreement. I've done tons of teachings on the 501c3 church. You can reference um, on the how I told you to look those sermons up a few minutes ago. Uh, <clears throat> let's go further. An $80 million church remodel, millionaire celebrity pastors, the list goes on and on. We could go on to list many, many scriptures which speak to our giving and meeting and needs, meeting the needs of others, the majority of which the church has perverted to fund their own buildings and ministry kingdoms. When the Bible talks about New Testament giving, it is almost always in reference to uh, supporting the orphans, supporting the widows, supporting to those that are need within the church. We're supposed to do good to those, especially that be of the household of faith. That was Old Test or New Testament giving. That was what it was based on. Which now would be considered, I guess, the benevolent fund, which is usually the most smallest faction of a church's ministry, if they even have one. It's all backwards. It's totally backwards. And again, please, if you don't believe it, please listen to my teaching on um, the the um, New Testament giving that I did versus the Old Testament Levitical tithe before you judge. <clears throat> he goes on to say, Meanwhile, as we looked for our own miracle 100-fold blessing, we, we did a lot of things most American Christians did, buying comforts, cars, and stuff. In other words, this is a guy that's been there, done it. I did the same thing. I was I was in the charismatic. A lot of this is really in the charismatic church movement. Much of it, what we bought was on credit. We bought houses during the real estate run-up. We even did something I told everyone else never to do. We took a home equity loan on our home to buy an investment property in 2005. So they're taking money out to buy other things, to make investments. Where does it end? Where's the Bible for it? You know, everything that we do in life, we should be able to base it off the Bible. And there's no Bible for any of this stuff. The Bible preaches clearly against it. But not for it. Uh, yes, we got a good financial spanking courtesy of, quote, the curse that we brought ourselves under. And finally, we got the message, get out of debt. I could write the book, Debt for Dummies, but finally, praise God, we understood. God really means what he says. Oh, no, man. Means what it means. Oh, no, man. Nobody. No one. Anything except love. How about... All you tithe-loving preachers that hammer away at the folks on Malachi 3, 9, and 10. Do you teach that debt is part of the curse? So if the people are in debt, they are under the curse, even when they tithe? In fact, Paul wrote Galatian Christians that if they kept the law, um, which was part, part in part tithing, what was the tithe for? It was to support the Old Testament Levitical priesthood that didn't have jobs, that attended to the things of God in the temple. That was why they had that Old Testament Levitical tithe. We didn't have that after um, Jesus Christ came. So therefore, that was done away with. Now, I'm not saying that God couldn't say or convict you of still giving 10%. I'm not saying that that's not going to be the case. But if to say it's written in stone and you've got to do it, it's not there. Um, let's go further. 
For as many, uh, let's see, they were under the curse. Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. So see, this is where you can actually bring yourself under a curse. Thinking, I've got to keep the Sabbath. And, and I've got to tithe. And if I don't, um, I'm going to go to hell. Well, hold on. Are we saved by works? Are we saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Christ is the end of the law to them that believe. You see how so many of the teachings I've done tie together. We could, now we could go into the whole Hebrew Roots movement thing with the Sabbath and all that stuff. For as many of the works, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that Jesus said that tithing, that was of the matters of the law, according to Matthew 23, 23. So it was, it was part of the Old Testament Levitical law. So if you're striving to keep that and thinking that this is part of your salvation process, you are really bringing yourself under a curse. You may not have ever thought of it that way, but you, you need to. Borrowing and debt are part of the curse. When we borrow, we go under the curse and oppression and we become a slave to the lender. That's what happens when we transgress God's word. We go back under the law. or It's almost like we're voluntarily putting ourselves under this. What are some of the, quote, freebies that come with debt? How about a sense of obligation? How about worry, anxiety, fear, greed, lust for gain, gambling in the lottery and hope of deliverance? <laughs> True. How about the economic slavery and loss of spiritual liberty? How about the pressures of the bills that keep coming? The fact that if the payments are not made, repossessions can take place. The loss of the ability to give to others. Binding the future to a pledge and a promise. Family stress, money problems, break up many marriages, the huge, the loss of huge amounts of money to interest charges, particularly if you're in this credit card garbage. I mean, they've got now, now with the credit cards, they're up to 25%. You know, you get behind on one payment, boom, that thing goes up to 25%. Mortgage is a French word that he's saying it means death grip. I, I, I've... It, actually, mortgage, I believe, uh, is the French word that means death contract is another way it's also stated. Mort, which is where we get the word mortuary, mortality. Um, that's where that root word comes from. It means death. Gage, I believe, means contract. He's saying it means death grip. Same thing. I wouldn't advise getting into a mor- mortgage. Partic- I mean, look at the day and times we're living in. Why would you want something... You know, 30 years we'll have it paid off, Glad. Do you really think we're going to be around in 30 years on this earth that we're just going to be continuing the same way it is now? Please. I mean, the way things are moving, I know I said this about 2009, but it'd be a miracle if we got out of 2010 and things not getting really, really, really heavy duty. How that's going to play out, I don't know. World War Three. so many different ways it could play out. Going further, it says there are more negatives to debt, but the bottom line is that the curse of debt is waiting for us when we give in to the temptation to get what God has not provided. Sadly, this is where the church has experienced its own Babylonian captivity. The world is very wise at luring Christians into debt, trap, and bondage. We are bombarded with the world's message that debt and borrowing is the rosy road to having it all. The house, the SUV, the clothes, the travel, the good life. We recall some of the testimonies in church, how one family had a beautiful new car 
and how blessed they were. Somehow it was never mentioned that they were 48 monthly payments and about $2,000 of interest in which they were also blessed with. In our old church, these same folks were lauded as blessed because they tithed faithfully. So did we. In fact, we borrowed mortgage to pay a little to pay a tithe on a house that we were given. In fact, faithful tithers were used publicly were usually publicly noted as examples in the church. And only one family that we knew of was debt free. I've been there, done that. Come into this church, you know, here I am a doctor, I'm, I'm earning a pretty decent living. And I'm always pointed out and praised. Oh, you know, this, you know, it's a bunch of garbage. You know, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I shouldn't have been being pointed out and singled out as being better because I gave more to the church. The Bible says when you give, let let not your right hand know what your left hand is doing. If you give to be seen among men, Jesus says, verily, you have your reward. I'm not saying I was given to be seen among men, but the fact is, 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 you know, if you pay, um, you know, in this particular church, you know, they, they knew what you were giving. And, you know, they played favorites. It's just wrong. It's wrong. It's just not right. It's, it's, you know, God is no respecter of persons. Now, if you're truly convicted to give 10%, I do believe we should give. I'm not saying that, that, we shouldn't give. Um, I personally, I'm convicted to give more than 10%. But that's just me, okay? Um, as a man hath purposed in his heart, so let him give. But not of necessity, for the Lord loveth the cheerful giver. That's what the Bible says in the New Testament, okay? And, and primarily, I like to give to organizations like, um, well, other Christians, or worthy ministries, or orphans and widows, and um, you know things of this nature. But I would I would prefer them to be non five hundred one c three organizations. That's what I really like to put my money into if if I'm going to um, give. I mean, why would I want to put it back into a five hundred one c three corporate entity that's just yoked up with the government? That's a little bit hypocritical, particularly with the way that I speak on those issues. So, that's my personal conviction. Um, so, let's go further here. Uh, what happens when our heart departs from God and we do not pay attention to, the, to His Word to do it? Why the Lord simply gives us over to the lust of the flesh and we start believing the TV ads and the business deals that we deserve the new Lexus. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I deserve it. Oh, these commercials that they've got on. That one commercial, the, the new one for the Charger, I think, or it's whatever, shows these men, they're all defeated, every one of them. Yes, honey, I'll take out the trash. Yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll do this. And then it says, man's last stand. And it shows this big new muscle car Charger going down the road. This is the one thing I've still got in my life where I can go out and be a man's man. A man for all seasons. A man among boys. Don't mess with me when I'm on the road. Or I can go out and get my Harley and let my hair down. And act like a total reprobate and devil on my Harley. That'll just ruin you. Getting into that Harley garbage. Or I'm going to go out and get a tattoo. Or get something pierced. 
give me a break. Grow up. My word. The only thing we deserve is death and hell apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I deserve it. What I deserve, Scott Johnson, is death and hell. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, that's all I deserve. We've just got our perspective all messed up. And in the church, evidently, the preachers have convinced the people, the congregations, that you deserve this. And, well, I guess the pastors think they deserve it, you know. Many of them have those lavish lifestyles. It's unbelievable. Proverbs 14.14 The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. That's what we're talking about here. Mark 4.19 And the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Why isn't the word penetrating into me? I just don't get it. Well, maybe because the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things Aaron Inch have choked off the word. It's a pretty good reason. And the word becomes unfruitful. You could preach to that person all day long. Word doesn't do anything to me. I don't understand it. Well, maybe you're not even saved. But if you are, you know, maybe you're under multiple curses and you're not even aware of it. You got multiple cursed objects in your house. You're in all kind of debt and see nothing wrong with it. You're going to a 501c3 corporate entity. You're reading a false Bible version. You've got all kind of ungodly things that you participate in and see no problem with it whatsoever. You could go on and on and on. I'm not saying that because I'm saying I'm perfect. Okay, I'm just saying these are reasons where you could become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It's deceitful sin, remember? It's not just sin, it's deceitful. What, what does that mean? If you're deceived about something, you're not even aware of it. That's why the Bible says, cleanse me of presumptuous sins and secret faults that they will not have dominion over me. Presumptuous sins are sins that you presume aren't even sins. And secret faults are things that are false about you, but they're secret to even you. You don't even... Or maybe you're aware of them, maybe you are keeping them secret. I don't know. i not thinking that they're, they're anything big. Well, the Lord would, though. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. <clears throat> so, wow, what a potent set of scriptures. I must admit, as churchgoers, our lives were filled with the very, the very thing God warned us about. All while dressing up in a nice suit, holding a position and a title, having the respect of the church folks, and living the life of a Christian businessman. It was a year or two after leaving the church that the Lord began to comfort, confront us in regard to our debt. Hidden pride, covetousness, greed, and more. Our investments turned sour. Our little empire began to fall. And the Lord showed me in a dream what was about to do before it all happened. We began to repent deeply from a sorrowful heart. We changed our ways. In times past, we talked about being debt-free. But now we got serious about it. And now I understood that, oh, no man, anything meant that. No need for the Greek lexicon or the spiritualized interpretation on that verse anymore. Just do it. We began to sell our stuff. We began to pay off debt. We began, to, we paid off every debt except the first mortgage, the home equity loan, which was too large for us. 
So we cashed in our IRAs and took the tax hit. We depleted our savings and we told God we would work hard, spend less, and pay everything off. We disconnected even the cable TV. It took about 18 months, but now we are debt-free for the first time in our marriage. My adult life, it is wonderful. We don't have a new car. We don't have rental houses. We don't have exotic travel vacations. We don't have a boat. We don't have IRAs or 401ks. But we do have peace, contentment, joy. And we are able to help others... Through loving, joyful giving. And our needs are met. It's just so much less pressure if you live this way. I know some of you got there a long time ago. But I was not that smart. (laughs) I love the way this guy writes. It's it's, it's humble. I love that. Uh, But for some other things, for some others who still labor under the curse of debt, we do testify to you that when we got serious about this, God showed up. And as months of debt-free living go by, we are experiencing the blessing, which is part of the, quote, better covenant. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. What is your salvation worth? Our abundance was taking us to hell. Uh, Now, again, I'm not going to turn this into a heaven and hell issue. I would turn this into a chastisement issue. Okay? Whom the Lord loveth, he also chastens. God was chastening them. I don't think it meant that they were unsaved. But um, I don't know if that's what he was getting at here or not. Um, but by his sovereign grace, we will never go into debt again. I don't care how high my credit score is. They can keep it. (laughs) That's true. You know, um, when you don't, if you're not worried about this, well, I I don't think we're going to get that mortgage because my credit score isn't high enough. What am I going to do? No, I need, you know, listen, I've been there. I've done it. I've been doing that. And I, and I don't worry about my credit score anymore. I have paid every single other thing that I had as a debt other than the one thing I told you about my school loan. And you know what? Reading this, I I would need to get more serious. But I've really devoted myself full-time to this ministry now. And I'm just basically living by faith on what comes into the ministry. So it's kind of tough. Um, but I have paid off every other thing. And now I had a lot of other stuff. I had a lot of other um, debt. You know? So... A lot of times, it's it's incremental for people. They'll get one thing done, you've shown the Lord you're serious about that, and then he gives you means to go after further and further and further debt. So it's not cookie cutter for everybody. Everybody's not going to get out of debt in you know six months or a year or two years. It depends on the extent to which you're in debt as well. And you reap what you sow. You're still going to reap what you sow. So... Um, He goes on to say, God's economy is giving and receiving. The world's economy is buying, selling, and lending. Before signing off, we would like to mention the blessing side of this. If you are not blessed because of tithing, um, you are not blessed because of tithing. That's a lot. In other words, if you think you are bound by a 10% Levitical tithe, and this is what your life has to be bound by, and you're living under the law, that's a very dangerous place to be. You're actually under a curse. As we gave you that Bible verse before. All those that continue, not all the things of the law are under a curse. And you can't do it. You can't, you can't live under the law perfectly. It would be like trying to live in sinless perfection. Even after you're saved, you can't do it. Um, if this were true, God would have said so in our New Testament, uh, in the New Testament and given instructions regarding the tithe. He never gave tithe into tithe the church. Never. Here is where the blessedness secret is found. Uh, Romans 13.8 Owe no man anything but to love one another. 
He that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. And again, we've done a whole study on overcoming, where I got into this, um, the commandments, what are the actual commandments um, regarding uh, the New Testament in these things. Um, Purpose and act now to get out of debt. Repent for borrowing and whatever else the Lord showed you about this. Now, just so you know, the school loan that I mentioned, I had that way before I was ever saved. And wasn't, I didn't do that after I was saved. Granted, it took me a long time to figure this out even after I was saved. But that was way before then. Luke eleven twenty eight. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Um, so, amen. Amen. Acts twenty thirty five. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen to that, man. Um, And we're to support the weak. Now, I don't know if he gets into the other verses here. Um, I mean, it it talks about that in other parts of the Bible as well. And I got into this in the the teaching I did on the uh, Old Testament Levitical tithe versus the New Testament um, giving. Well, here's one verse right here uh, where it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. So this was to the churches of Galatia. And what was the, what was the uh, collection for? It was for the saints. It wasn't to build a big church. They were probably all home churches back then anyway. You know what's great about a home church like we're meeting in right now? You don't got any overhead. All the overhead's gone. Yeah, but I want to build an empire to myself. I want to have it. I want to have people worship me and come in and see how wonderful I am. Oh, please, give me a break. I mean, we don't need that. You could have a home church like we have. I try to be try to be some kind of example here, but it says now concerning the collection for the saints. Now the Bible does say about supporting. Uh, those that are ministering to the word of God and, and, and these types of things. So I'm not saying there's no biblical precedence for giving to a pastor or a preacher or a bishop or somebody that's devoted themselves to um, this life, okay? But when you have that and then you have the big church building you have to take care of and worry about and all the other stuff that goes along. And the bigger the church building gets, the more people you got to hire and the, and the more overhead you get. All that overhead has to be paid. And that's where the majority of the monies are going to build bigger buildings, bigger ministries. And these ministries are apostate. Again, as we've chronicled almost every week. Then it goes on to say, upon the first day of the week, which was Sunday, let every one of you Lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. That's what they did in the, in the New Testament. It wasn't saying they were giving it to the uh, Old Testament Levitical priesthood. It says, every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. What does that imply? It implies that it was probably different for every person coming in there. That there be no gatherings when I come. Okay, here's another verse. Just while we're on the subject. I did cover this in um, 
I did cover this in the teaching I did on the New Testament. I just cover. Um, oh, you've got Second Corinthians eight um, four praying for us with with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Okay, now if we go further. By inequality, this is verse 14. By inequality, that now at this time, your abundance may be a supply for their want. So in other words, some people were abundantly blessed with material things, and they supplied the want of those lacking. That their abundance also may be a supply for your want. That there may be equality. As it is written, he hath gathered much, had nothing over. And he that had gathered had no lack. In other words, they didn't want anybody to lack in the New Testament church. There wasn't people going around, you know, one person was, was uh, filled in fat and the other person was over there starving. It wasn't, it wasn't the way it was. Verse, uh, then chapter 9. For as touching for the minute, this, it starts out verse 1. Verse 1 says, which sets the tone for the rest of the chapter, for as touching the ministering to the saints. He said, it is superfluous for me to write to you. That word superfluous means that which, that which have been um, spoken of much before. In other words, this has been stated many, many, many times before. Probably even not maybe even in the Bible, but... Regarding his address, uh, Paul's address to the Corinthians, this has been stated many, many other times. Corinthians, remember, the book of Corinthians was a lot of it was kind of a rebuke to a carnal church. So he was trying to establish the way things should be done in decency and order within the church. He says, as for as the touching of the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write unto you. Meaning I've already said this to you before, but I'm going to say it again. Verse 6, but this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly. Okay? And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. For some people it may be more than 10% that they are convicted to give. Remember, we're supposed to give, we're supposed to give out of our abundance. We're also going to see another criteria here. Every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give. If you're a born-again Christian, what would it be inside you that establishes this purpose for you to so give if it's God's will? I mean, if, if it's, not, not if it's God's will, but don't you think it would be the Holy Spirit that live inside you that would actually be the one that convicting you to give and to give the amount that God wants you to give? I think so. Every man according as he is purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God love of the cheerful giver. I mean, if you give to be seen among all men and you give grudgingly, <laughs> verily you have to reward. I mean, you're not going to, God's not going to honor that. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad. He hath given to the poor. It talks a lot about giving. True religion is this, you know. 
to go to the widows and the orphans and, and, and these types of things. And then also talks about here to the ministering of the saints and the collection for the saints. Now we're also talking about the ministering of the saints. Now it's talking about giving to the poor. He hath dispersed abroad. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness remaineth forever. Whoa, that's a huge blessing it sounds like when you, when you do this. Okay? Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food. And multiply your seed sown. And increase the fruits of your righteousness. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness which causes through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints. Here we go. Supplieth the want of the saints. But is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ. And for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. Now what's implying here is that when you do this in a biblical way, you're subjecting yourself to the gospel of Christ by your liberal distribution unto men. And what is the result of that? You're glorifying God through this biblical Giving. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Um, so, anyway, these are, these are some, some biblical tenets. And the Bible does, and again, the Bible does talk about supporting the ministers that minister in the word of God as well. So there's, there's other aspects of giving, okay? But these are the primary ones we need to be focusing on. Not building big gigantic ministries and big church buildings. And these buildings, I mean, what good are they going to be when things, particularly when things start to go bad? They're probably going to be used as gathering points for the, for the pickup points in mass vaccination centers, as I've said before. Because the 501c3 church, to a large extent, has teamed up with Homeland Security and FEMA. And the documentation is out there to prove it. I've documented it in many other teachings. So, these are things we want to be really, really careful about. Um, Deuteronomy 15.6, these are some other verses. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee, as he hath promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. Thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. What if, what if we reverse the verse? If you borrow from these many nations, they're reigning over you in a certain sense. It's okay for, for I think, a Bible-believing Christian, you know... Well, in this sense, in this Old Testament Levitical sense, it was okay for a Bible believer to lend to these nations because you were actually reigning over heathen. Okay, evidently. Now, the way that is now, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, but the the fact, the emphasis that we want to understand is we're not supposed to borrow. We were never supposed to borrow in any biblical dispensation. Proverbs 15.27 He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. Matthew 6.19 Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt where thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Ecclesiastes 6.2 A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor so that he wanteth nothing for his soul 
of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. 1 Timothy 6.5 Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. You've got, you got a lot of uh, ministries or preachers out there, and a lot of people look up to these guys. Um, oh, they got all this money. Creflo, give me a dollar. And, and all these TD fakes and, and Benny Hinn. And, uh, yeah, I know. I've got the, all the stories about Benny Hinn's wife divorcing him and all this stuff. And you know, there's only so much I can cover, I mean, regarding that or whatever. But um, these guys, they live these lavish lifestyles. And they have no conviction that it's even wrong. It greatly makes me question that they're saved at all because if they were really saved, God would chasten them in their wickedness. And I just don't see it. But they would suppose and convince you, these false apostles, these wolves in sheep's clothing, these ministers that appear as ministers of righteousness, but it's no great marvel if Satan can appear as a minister of righteousness, that his, or an angel of, of light, that his ministers can appear as ministers of righteousness. It's no great thing. These are hirelings, meaning they're doing it for the hire. They have no true love for the sheep. They're not giving you the truth. They'll convince you that gain is godliness. That's what they try to convince you. That's half the reason these people give. I've watched uh, this. I watched this thing the other night. Not, I don't know how long ago it was, but Creflo Dollar and some other guy, and they were convincing all these people the reason that they're poor. And the reason they're not is because they haven't given enough. And they need to come up and they need to bring all the money they can and put it on the stairs. And, and we're going to pray over it. And the, as they were praying over it, they were, they were doing this, this dance on top of the money. All these, it was these two black preacher guys. And um, I'm not being prejudiced, I'm just saying it was in this, it, it could happen in a white church, black church, yellow, I don't care. But, I mean, it was unbelievable. It was so sickening, I couldn't even hardly watch it. And these people were just eating it up convinced and believing in their mind that they're going to you know, be instantly rich or something. It's just like the Oprah Winfrey, the secret name and claim, it's just a different way of doing it. They're, they're supposing that gain is godliness. You know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to withdraw ourselves from those types of people. We're not even supposed to be around them. And yet many people go in there and sit in their churches week after week after week and wonder why they're so spiritually blind. Or you could look at them and wonder why they're so spiritually blind. Well, they they put themselves under a curse. They're 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 blinded. They've willingly put themselves under a man or a woman that has literally put a spell on them. The Bible verse I've quoted many times: while they promise them liberty, this would be somebody like Benny Hinn or Fred Price or uh, Creflo Dollar or. T.D. Jakes, or whatever. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. And then it goes on to say, for of whom a man is overcome, the same he is brought into bondage. If you go and you sit in these places where this wickedness goes on, you will be brought into bondage eventually, or God's going to get you out of there. And when you're brought into bondage, you're blinded. You're, you're blinded. The, the, the prince of this world will blind your eyes that you will not see. 
Very, very dangerous place to be. First um, Timothy six six says, "But godliness with contentment is great gain." Proverbs thirty eight says, "Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me." Wow, how many people pray that way? <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, a lot of this I'm preaching to myself as much as I am anyone else. Second Peter three three, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Pastors, um, what some of the qualifications for a pastor? First Timothy three three, a husband and one wife, God be a man, but not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre. I mean. I think that would disqualify just about the whole TV ministry. You know, I'm sorry, but I see this everywhere in ministries. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Isaiah 56:11. Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. And they are, and these are these are of, of a pastor, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way. It's all about me, me, me. Just like it was for Satan when he first fell. I will ascend under the sides of the north. I will be like the Most High when it was Lucifer. And then he fell. Why? Because of his merchandise and his beauty, he was lifted up. His merchandise. What does that apply? Money. The love of money is the root of all evil. He wanted more of it. They are greedy dogs which can never have enough. They are shepherds that cannot understand. If the blind lead at the blind, they're both going to fall into a ditch, right? If you're putting yourself under a hireling or under a wolf in sheep's clothing or under a minister of Satan, do you think that's going to turn out good? How could it turn out good? They cannot understand. They all look to their own way, to everyone for his gain from his quarter. It's all about me. But see, the Bible, Jesus said, let them that are greatest among you, let him be your servant. Let him be your servant. And let him humble himself as a little child. All things that are contrary to what we're talking about here. Greed and all these other things. All these things that lift a man up. Jesus said, let him be, humble himself. Let him be, you know, Fear God. Humble himself. Let him come to me as a little child. All the things that are opposite. Let him have humility before his fellow man. Let him be a servant to others. All the things that the modern day church typically doesn't preach. Now some do. I'm not condemning every church. I'm just saying most don't. So anyway, that's that's all I've got for today. Um, we'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and time you've given us. Do pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for any and all sins we've committed in any way, shape, or form. That you would cleanse us of presumptuous sins and secret faults that they would not have dominion over us, Lord. That the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. That we would apply these spiritual tenets and truths to our lives. Um, As much to me as as anyone else, Lord, um, I, I pray, Lord, that we would prepare ourselves and be, Lord, in a position of strength and not of weakness when things really start to fall apart in this world, which I believe they're going to do very soon. 
I pray that you would strengthen the body of Christ. My listeners, all those that would be listening to this, I truly pray you bless them, but you bless them with us knowing exactly what needs to be done to prepare ourselves, both physically, spiritually, mentally, in every way, shape, and form, Lord, for what is coming. I know getting out of debt would be one thing. To be be unencumbered, I would imagine, Lord, is possible. So that if we had to move on a moment's notice, we would have that option. To not store ourselves, to, to be laying up treasure in heaven, Lord. I, I just pray that we be put in a position where we can be used when things get bad. That we can actually be an example and a shining light for others that are not going to be in that position. And maybe somebody, maybe these people that are are in like the apostate church, they'll see true Christians that they are prepared, that they're not scared, that they're ready for whatever is coming. And that that will drive be an example for many for repentance, that we would be able to help these other people um, when things get bad, Lord. Because that's what it's all about. It's about helping others. It's about being a servant to others. I just pray you, you, you really pre-position. I pray you give us discernment, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and the courage to implement and act through that. And that you would increase our faith. And that every single person hearing this, I I pray, and including myself, that we really would endeavor harder to get out of debt. And that you would open the doors no man can shut, and shut the doors no man can open regarding this prayer. And that every devil, demon, evil entity, fallen angel, or fallen cherub that would try to hinder this prayer in any way, shape, or form, I pray, Lord God, they be rebuked in the name of Jesus Christ. Nothing would be able to hinder this from happening. Ultimately, Lord, we pray these things so that your name be glorified and that many would be saved and brought into your kingdom. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.